Father in heaven, how grateful we are that we are not alone in our fight against Satan. How grateful we are that you love us so much that Jesus came to this earth to live his life, not just as an example, but that we might have his power and his strength. We pray that you will be with us in our class today and in the days to come. May we be drawn closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our uh, class today is Righteousness by Faith. That's a pretty ostentatious name. I was hesitant to use it, but there's really no other way to focus in on what's really important about what we're going to talk about, but to realize that there's a message of righteousness by faith that God wants us to understand. And the truth is, it's the difference between life and death, eternal life and eternal separation from Jesus. But there's so much more to this, and it's all good news. Well, we live in a sinful world, and that's not good news. I don't think I need to tell you that. But we do need to understand a little bit about our history. How many of you were able to attend uh, Ron Duffield's class last year? Let me see your hands. Okay. Ron Duffield, I'll talk to, that, you, uh, to you a little bit more about that in a little bit. Actually, in some ways, that's good. Because it's nothing, never, never encouraging to be compared between one speaker and another. And uh, uh, Ron Duffield is a great uh, individual that I've come to really appreciate. He's a lay person. He is uh, an occupational therapist, um, respiratory therapist. My mistake, in case this is ever seen by Ron. <laughs> and uh, out in California. But he has done some tremendous work, and we're going to talk about that. Um, part way through our class, not so much today, but in the time that comes ahead. And I'll share a little bit of my own personal journey along the way here in seeking to understand this most important topic. And it's more than just a topic, as you and I will see. I've titled today's class 130 Years Later. It's 2018. 130 years ago was when? 1888. We want to talk about that a little bit. But I want to share some things with you. Did we have prayer? I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. I'm getting a little discombobulated here, so I want to make sure we did. I want to share something with you that is a focal point. How many of you have read the Conflict of the Ages series? Praise the Lord. At the beginning and the ending of that series, Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, Acts of the Apostles, whoops, Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostles, and Great Controversy. The beginning of the first book and the ending of the last are three words. What are they? God is love. And here she quotes John 1 John 4.16, and then she says, His nature, his law, is love. It ever has been, it ever will be, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose ways are everlasting, changeth not. With him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And she's quoting there from Isaiah, Habakkuk, and James. And then she says, every manifestation of creative power is an expression of infinite love. The sovereignty of God involves fullness of blessing to all created beings. God is love. That is the center of the great controversy because Satan is trying to prove that that's not the case. And there are chairs up here, by the way. Just wanted you to know, in case you were looking. <laughs> so, this is the focal point of the great controversy. Satan wants us not to believe that. And he's had several thousand years to work at perfecting that. 
And the challenge is when he gets in the church and he gets that whole concept mixed up, it is really a challenge for us. And that's a little bit of what we're going to be talking. Right up here, gentlemen, where I can keep a good eye on you. Oh, boy. <laughs> Fortunately, they're friends. That's why I could get away with saying that. So uh, we can work at that. We're going to... We're going to uh, zero in on the message of righteousness by faith. But in order to be really able to understand its impact and its importance for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have to understand a little bit about the history of this particular message in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'd like to share with you to start with the purposes that I have in mind. By the way, you should all have a notebook. Did everybody get one? Okay. Okay. Okay, were there any more left? Well, I'm surprised I'm short, but that could be. We might have to share to start out with, and then I'll have more tomorrow so that we have enough. So if you've got one you can share, I, I will take that as long as you... I really don't like doing that. Tell you what, hang on, let's wait till my secretary comes around, and then I will, uh, I will get to you. So let me just send a message to her real quick to me yeah I had a feeling she might not help needed period I don't see how that works <laughs> all right I want to share with you what our purpose is in the notebook I have given you some notes I'm not going to follow those printed notes um, there are quotations in there. There's a lot more there that I'm going to share, and that's really good news for you because you don't want me to do all whatever 16 pages I think I have in there or 12 pages. But it's material that is including material that I have on the screen and that I'm going to share, and then there's additional material. There's also an evaluation that I'd like you to do at the end of the class, unless for some reason you decide you're not going to be able to be here tomorrow, you've got to be in Hong Kong tomorrow, and uh, so you want to at least share that with me today, that's fine. Otherwise, keep that till the end of the class. Behind it is some blank notebook paper. And if you need a pen, I have pens up here. Uh, anybody need a pen? Just wave your hand and I can toss these at you or something. Oh, you're such a good class. You brought your own pens. We're good. You want us to fill this up at the end of the week. At the end of the week. Yeah. End of the week. Yeah, exactly. This class is going to be a progressive class, not progressive theology. It's just going to proceed one piece after the next. I want you to know that. But I want to share with you what our purpose and our goals are. And that's what I want to put on the screen for you right now. The first point that I want to share with you is that we want to review the history of the Righteousness by Faith message given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1888 and the years following. There is a lot of significance there. As I said, I'll share a little bit of my own personal journey in relationship to this as a way of giving you uh, a context for me, the person who's doing the sharing here of this message. The second is, it has been said that the 1888 message began the latter reign. Is this true? If so, what is the significance for us today? Next, our purpose is that the message has been called the third angel's message and the loud cry. What does that mean? And what is the significance? This is something that has just dawned on me and several of us that work in the conference office. And you might say, you, you work where? <laughs> you do what? <laughs> I'll explain that to you as we get a little farther along. What was the message given in 1888 and the years following? Why is the message important for our time today? The purpose and the goals are slightly different from each other. The goals are going to expand on the purpose. Number one, to learn history's lessons for us today. My friends, there are some lessons we had better learn unless we plan to be here for a lot longer. I hope that becomes abundantly clear by the time we get done with our study this week. Another goal is to understand what the latter rain really is and what it is not. 
for the longest time, I kept thinking of what I understood what to expect with the latter rain until I started looking more carefully and began to realize that what I was thinking and expecting was not what the Bible was trying to say and nor what Ellen White related to us. To grasp, another goal is to grasp the concept of what it means for the third angel's message to be lived in us today. There's so much confusion out there today from uh, as we've been hearing some of the messages that have been shared here through uh, the last uh, few days up in the main auditorium. Uh, as one speaker pointed out to us, there are individuals who focus in on Jesus only, but they forget the total picture of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you can go by to both extremes one way or the other. You can go to trying to live a holy life by your own works, or you can try to ignore what God is trying to do in your life and just simply thinking that knowing the name Jesus is all you need. And neither one of those are the message that God wants for His people in the last days. And as long as we live in that kind of confusion, the work will never be finished. I don't care how hard we work, and I don't care how many missionaries we put out, and I don't care how many Bible studies we conduct, and how many Unlock Revelation series we conduct, it will not be finished. I hope you heard what I said. To move from understanding what the message of righteousness by faith is, to applying it to our daily lives and to our witness. I remember recently, after a time up at Camp Asable, and the ministers were gathered together, and we had been studying this particular subject, if you want to call it that, and came back to the conference office, and several of us were kind of connecting there, and we said, you know what, we've got to do things differently. We've got to do things differently. It means changing significantly what we have been doing. And who was I talking to? I was talking to the evangelism coordinator for the Michigan Conference. I was talking to the conference secretary. And we realized that we have got to look at things differently. Why? Because the message we thought we understood, we're beginning to realize we don't. But the Lord is beginning to shed that light. And that's what I want to share with you during this week. I don't want to leave you under any illusions. I don't have all the answers. Maybe I'm going to tell you what I've learned. And what I've learned is where I've made mistakes. Maybe from my mistakes you'll learn where not to go and also learn where to go. But I also pray that God will help you and me together in this class and in our time that we spend to begin the journey that's going to finish God's work in this generation. Another goal is to recognize the implications of the rise of this message at this time and in the context of current events. That's one thing that in the last six months has just burst on my understanding is that there are things that are happening right now, significant things that are happening right now, that hap were happening in a slightly different form, but that would have brought about the same results beginning in 1888, and we failed to realize it. The church failed to realize it. Yes, there were those who were trying to help the church to see it, but today, we have failed to look back and to see that what was happening there was so significant and the work did not get done. And the same thing is happening again today. The same kind of a context, the same kind of, uh, of experience in the world, the same kind of thing within the church is happening again. There's been this gap of time in between the 1888 experience and the years that followed and what now is happening again. I don't believe it's just coincidence. And those of us who've been working on this together, the pastors and others, we are coming to that same conclusion. I want to share with you what our sources are. Here are the sources I'm going to share. Are they exhaustive sources? No. 
Today, you and I are privileged to have computers and phones and all that that can access all of Ellen White's writings or almost all of Ellen White's writings and, and Bibles galore and all of that kind of thing. But what we are going to look at especially, we're going to use the Bible as our source. The second is we're going to use the writings of Ellen White. Why the writings of Ellen White? Because God gave us a special messenger to help us in the last days. Amen. That we desperately needed, and as we talk about what we're going to talk about during the next few days, we'll understand why that is even more true than we realized. I'm also going to use some other sources. For the most part, those sources are going to get us back to the original sources. Ellen White is one of the original sources in relationship to what was going on in 1888. There are two other individuals that were original sources as well. They were Alonzo T. Jones and, and Ellet G. Wagner. There's J. Wagner. There's one other, and that is W. W. Prescott. Later in the week, I'll share some material from W. W. Prescott and the sermons he preached in Armadale or uh, Melbourne, Australia, that helped to bring into focus the direction that God wanted his people to go at that time, how to do evangelism, and he was doing evangelism. I'll tell you more about that story at that point. It will help us to be able to get an understanding of what was going on in the church in 1888 and the years that followed. These people that I'm highlighting right now were alive and present at that time in 1888. I highlighted this name, but I want to be careful with it. As far as I can tell, and I've looked, uh, I just got done looking at the minutes from the General Conference session of 1888. I believe from the records that I have that A.G. Daniels was not present at the 1888 General Conference. He had just recently gone to New Zealand where he had started a church there in 1886 and 1887. He actually opened the first church in New Zealand. He began the work in the South Pacific. He later became the General Conference president and uh, that was in 1901 and became the longest standing General Conference president in our, in our history from 1901 to 1922, if I remember correctly. Two other sources that I will use as well are uh, two books by Ron Duffield. One is The Return of the Latter Rain and the other is Wounded in the House of His Friends. I'll talk more about that along the way. I want to begin by focusing in on a book that I have had in my library for a lot of years. I've even had, uh, even had it uh, marked up some and, and that kind of thing. But you know how you, sometimes you read a book and it doesn't make the impression on your mind that God wants to make there, but he's planting some seeds along the way. But when I picked up this book more recently, I said, how did I not know and see that in the context of what we're doing right now? Now, this is not what the book looks like today, and it doesn't look like this, but it still is available. It's in print. You can get it from the ABC. I encourage you to get a copy of the book. It's not long, and it's not difficult reading. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the background to his book so that you understand it. I'm going to put that up on the screen. Some of it is in your notes so that you have that there so that you can follow along. But I think when you see what is being spoken of here, you'll understand why I'm beginning with using some of the material from what Elder Daniels put together. Let's put this into context as well as we can. The year is 1924. 1924. When did I tell you A.G. Daniels ended his presidency? 1922. Apparently, even retired pastors back then found some more work to do, right? Amen. And so, yes, I need a couple, three, about maybe five to ten more notebooks. Pardon me? The gray ones, yeah, please. With the notes in it, too, if you have that. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> At any rate, this is what Elder Daniel says. Remember, this is 1924. 
He was the general conference president. He's now retired. We're out of the period of, 19, of 1888 and the years that followed that were critical years in relationship to the message of righteousness by faith that God brought to the church. We have moved significantly into the 20th century at that particular point. And this is the forward to his book. You know, you don't forget to read all of a book because sometimes that context really helps to zero things. I almost missed it. Here is the forward or part of it. He said at a meeting of the members of the Ministerial Association, which by the way, I'm part of the Ministerial Association today, the North American Division and of the General Conference. He started the Ministerial Association, Elder A.G. Daniels did when he was president. At a meeting of the members of the Ministerial Association Advisory Council held in Des Moines, Des Moines Iowa, on October 22, significance of that date? 1924, it was voted that Elder Daniels be asked to arrange for a compilation of the writings of Ellen, Mrs. Ellen G. White on the subject of justification by faith. With the cooperation of my associates in the office of the Ministerial Association, I undertook the task designated. In harmony with the primary purpose of providing a compilation of the writings of Mrs. E.G. White on the subject, exhaustive research was made through all the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy as held in trust by us as a people in bound volumes and also in printed articles appearing in the files of our denominational papers, covering a period of 25 years from 1887 to 1912. Now the interesting thing to me is when he used the term exhaustive, do you understand what that means? <laughs> we have all of Ellen White's writings on here. For him it meant everything that was printed and they could get the time to read. And getting that all out of the files and pulling it out, no computers to do searches on and all of that. This was hard, exhaustive might be the right word, it had to be exhausting work to be able to do that. As a matter of fact, he continues on saying, so vast was the field of study opened up, so marvelous and illuminating the hidden gems of truth which came to light, that I became amazed and awed at the solemn obligation resting upon me of rescuing these gems from their obscurity and placing them in a cluster of brilliancy and beauty where they would win rightful recognition and acceptance in the glorious finishing of the work entrusted to the remnant church. That's quite a hefty statement. But it is amazing when you start to begin to understand the significance of this message and what it says, that it should bring so much joy, so much hope to us. If you've ever thought about the time of the end and how in the world will we ever make it through the time of the end. And you say, there's no way that I can live as a, as a human being and be what the Bible says we have to be in order for us to be ready when Jesus comes. And that can be an overwhelming experience until you put all of your problems in the context of the Bible's solutions. The Bible has the answers. That answer is Jesus Christ. And he's not a powerless Christ. He is all-powerful. And he has a tremendous message of hope for us. But we have been batting that message this way and that way. And we've squabbled and we've fought over that message. And we've done all kinds of crazy things to that message. And it's time for us to get back to where the message is and find that the message is crystal clear and doesn't have to be confused and doesn't have to be jumbled up by somebody's mistaken interpretation of our history. It's really good news. I pray that that's what you come away with as we go through this week. 
He says, continuing on, a careful, connected study of the writings of the spirit of prophecy regarding the subject of righteousness by faith has led to the settled conviction that the instruction given presents two aspects. Notice his two aspects right up here, uh, Shelley, as well. Um, a careful, connected study of the writings of the spirit of prophecy regarding the subject of righteousness by faith has led to the settled conviction that the instruction given presents two aspects. This is what Daniel says. Two aspects. He's writing this after putting this book together and he wants us to see what those two aspects are. Primarily, he says, the great, amazing fact that by faith in the Son of God, sinners may receive the righteousness of God. Did you get that? It was a lot of theology in that little statement. And I hope you will read that and realize what he's saying. And he says, that's the primary conviction that we are coming to, he said. And secondarily, the purpose and the providence of God in sending the specific message of no, of receiving the righteousness of God in by faith to his people, assembled in general conference in the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the year 1888. Thank you, Shelley. This latter aspect cannot be disregarded by Seventh-day Adventists without missing a most important lesson that the Lord designed to teach us. It is this conviction that has made it seem necessary to include in the compilation the instruction given concerning the experiences and developments connected with and following the Minneapolis conference. So I want to back up to that one statement there. This latter aspect cannot be disregarded by Seventh-day Adventists without missing a most important lesson that the Lord designed to teach us. And yet we have squabble over that. We have fought over that. Did it happen? Was 1888 even significant? Or did we really do what 1888 was all about anyway? And we, why are we even discussing it? I'll tell you why we need to discuss it today. Is because that message was to finish the work. And I don't know about you, but I'm still here. Yeah. And so are you. That message was to have finished the work 130 years ago and the years that followed. And you and I are still here. That is the biggest clue that you and I have, that there is something very wrong about this whole experience that we haven't gotten. And the good news is it's not all that confusing when we get to it. Ellen White made this statement, and he quotes this statement. And it's, a, it's one that's rehearsed again and again and again. But you can't start a class like this on righteousness by faith and the 1888 experience without reading this message. Now, it's interesting that A.G. Daniels, and when he quotes this message, <laughs> I haven't quite figured out why. I'd like to talk to him, but since he's not alive, I'm not going to have that chance. He specifically left out this right here. He left that part out. I find that fascinating because perhaps the whole issue of people sometimes gets things confusing. And the truth is that by 1924, the names of jo uh, Wagner and Jones had some clouds over them. And that, that probably is why he left those names out. Ellen White makes it abundantly clear that their message the message that those two men shared, along with Ellen White and others, Prescott and others, was a powerful message to be shared and to be believed. And she warned that if anything happened to those men spiritually, it would not cloud their message. I want to make sure that's abundantly clear. So, this is what she said. The Lord, in His great mercy, sent a most precious message to His people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. Notice that's capitalized. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. 
Again, there's huge theology in that one statement of Ellen White invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in the obedience to the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands, that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gifts of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. I'm going to read that again. Imparting, I will if I can keep it in place, imparting the priceless gift of what? His own righteousness. To whom? The helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of His Spirit in a large measure. In that statement, there are so many clues to the confusion that we have today and its resolution. And that's what we have to look at in the days that are ahead of us. I want you to look at how he reacts to this statement. A.G. Daniels says this, every sentence in this comprehensive statement, I like that word comprehensive because it is comprehensive, is worthy of most careful study. As a matter of fact, so much so, and this is one of the things I like about Daniel's book. He has a number of numbered lists. Number of numbered lists. Anyway, he has quite a few numbered lists in his book. And I like those lists because my mind kind of thinks that way. It must have, must have carried over to my daughter because when she was a little girl, she made lists of everything. She made lists of all this. She made what, lists of what she's going to do in a, uh, uh, for a wedding. She made all kinds of lists after lists. It must be a family trait. I don't know. But I like lists. And it helps me to summarize these points. And this is what Daniels did. Here's what he says. Number one, he's summarizing the points that came out of this statement, which is quoted in... Uh, uh, Testimonies to Ministers, page 91, and the pages that follow, and also in uh, Daniel's book, I believe this is pages 24 and 25, if I remember correctly. Number one, he says, she says it's a most precious message. The Lord, in His great mercy, sent a most precious message to His people. That should get our attention. That should tell us there's something here we need to be looking at. Then he speaks to the object and he says, the, this message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. When I share the story later this week of what happened with Prescott in Armadale, Melbourne, Australia, you'll begin to understand how significant that statement is. He had been doing evangelism before that with limited success, even there in Australia. But when he started applying the principles that are recorded for us in this message, it began to make a significant change. I can't tell you all that right now. You won't come back later. <laughs> I'll tell you more about that story later, and I'll tell you what made the difference. He speaks to the scope, and he says it presented justification through faith in the surety. Who's the surety? Jesus is the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. He goes on and he says, the need is pointed out in this message, in this paragraph that Ellen White speaks. He says, many had lost sight of Jesus. We'll take a look a little bit later about the context of why she would make that statement and why that was important for her to say that. As we look in the next couple of days at what it was that, that uh, she was trying to communicate to God's people and how the people had lost sight of Jesus, it will become clearer. And how, how, how completely they had lost sight of Jesus 
is a very sad story. Even leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church had their eyes off of Jesus and onto something else. He goes on and he says they needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. And then she speak, he speaks to the resources, and this is number five in his list. All power, he says, quoting her, is given into his hands. Into whose hands? Jesus, Jesus has all power. Be that he may dispense rich gifts unto men. We already talked about this, but I, I mentioned this anyway. And again, he says, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. To what extent, he says, this is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. That is what is so critical to you and to me today. If we don't carry this message to the world, we will continue to stay here. God cannot work with His people till they understand this message and apply it to their lives. The work will not be finished because the Spirit of God cannot work with people who are justifying themselves through their own works or seeking to do so. He can only work through those and He can only prepare those for the return of Jesus that are willing to surrender everything to Jesus. Everything to Jesus. And then he says what it really is. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large message, a measure. Some of us, as we've been kind of going through this journey, you know how you can read something again and again and your mind tends to go down the same track that it's always gone down and you fail to catch that last point that is so absolutely critical that you that you you just go back and you say I really missed that I really didn't get that honestly it's right there how could I possibly have missed that it's easy to quote the third angel's message from Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through what? 9 through 11, without realizing that the third angel's message has one more verse in it. We'll talk about that later. Here's what Daniels says for us, and this is significant. As I conclude today's presentation, you'll understand why this whole issue needs to be visited by you and me today, and to be frank, by the whole denomination. And the good news is, the light is beginning to shine again. Amen. Daniels says that in 1888, those who attended that general conference session, he says there were three classes of people who attended that session. Here are those classes. This is his quote. Now, I don't believe, I think I got interrupted and didn't say this very clearly. If I did, I apologize, but I'm going to go back and say it. As I looked at the minutes of the general conference session, it does not appear that he was at that session. I didn't say that, didn't I? And yet, that doesn't mean that he didn't know what was going on and hear about it. And certainly, when he later became the general conference president, he was uh, connected with many of those, uh, those issues. And he came back to the United States well before he became president. At any rate, he makes this observation. He says there were three classes of people that attended that, that uh, general conference session. The first one, he says, is those who saw great light in it and gladly accepted it who believed it to be a most essential phase of the gospel and felt that it should be given great emphasis in all efforts to save the lost. Now, I didn't put the whole quotation up here of what he said, but I do want to add one more piece to it that he said. 
To this class, the message appeared to be the real secret of a victorious life in the conflict with sin, and that the great truth of being made righteous by faith in the Son of God was the most pressing need of the remnant church in preparing for translation at the second advent. Again, there's a whole lot of theology there that we'll come back to. So class number one is those who saw that this message was indeed a precious message. And it says, he says that they accepted that message. But he also says that there were two other classes. The second class, he says, there were some, however, who felt uncertain about the new teaching, as they termed it. They seemed unable to grasp it. He goes on and he says, they could not reach a conclusion. As a result, their minds were thrown into a state of perplexity and confusion. They neither accepted nor rejected the message at the time. So the first class he mentions are those who accepted the message. The second class are those who were confused. They were just trying to figure this all out. I understand that. I've been there. I don't know about you, but it's easy to kind of get goofed up in all of this. And you listen to one person and another person. You listen to this leader and that leader. You listen to that preacher and this preacher. You listen to that Sabbath school teacher and this Sabbath school teacher. And you get together and you talk about it. Sometimes you come away confused. And he says that's what happened. There was a class of people during that time. And remember, he's writing in 1924, all right? And then he said there was a third class. And here's the third class. There were others who were decidedly opposed to the presentation of the message. Three classes. Those who accepted, those who couldn't figure out which side of the fence to be on, and those who definitely were not on that fence. I mean, not on the other side, on the right side of the fence, as Ellen White would speak to the message. Not, she didn't talk about fences, but... There were others who were decidedly opposed to the presentation of the message. As we will look and review this history, you will be reminded that those people were not insignificant leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. My goal is not to throw anybody under the bus, but to realize that the leaders of the church at the time that chose to oppose this message had so much influence that it significantly affected the response of the church and the members to that message. Daniels goes on in this summary of these points and he says, they that were opposed claimed that the truth of righteousness by faith had been recognized by our people from the very first and this was true theoretically. For this reason, they saw no occasion for placing such great stress and emphasis upon the subject as was being done by its advocates. Furthermore, they feared that the emphasis placed upon this theme of righteousness by faith would cast a shadow upon the doctrines that had been given such prominence from the beginning of our denominational history. A little further down, he says, they were fearful that if these doctrines were overshadowed by any teaching or message whatsoever, our cause would lose its distinctive character and force. There was a struggle in the church. It was born out of genuine sincere concern that the church might get off on some message or tangent that would lead away from where God wanted his people to be. And they felt that the law had done a good thing for the church because the other denominations had turned their back on the law and we were needing to place more emphasis on the law so that we could be clearly distinct from the other denominations. And they were in a struggle to understand this. And therefore they opposed this message because they saw this message as coming at, as being opposed to the law and undermining the importance of our involvement in this process. And because of that, they turned their back on that message. Now the part that I need to kind of speed up on a little bit to bring us uh, here before we finish today and... I have about 25 minutes, so I will have plenty of time to do that. But Ellen White's warnings after the 1880 General Conference session are zeroed in on by A.G. Daniels. 
there were warnings that she gave. He makes this statement. He says, the message has never been received or proclaimed. Now, I want you to catch this because, again, this is 1924 when he says this. Are you with me? This message, he said in 1924, has never been received or proclaimed. And then he quotes from some of Ellen White's warning messages to those who had not accepted the message. And he summarizes her statements with the warnings with a list. Ah, here's one of those lists again. You can get some of those quotations or in your notes. You can go through and read this. It'll be good reading tonight when you get some time to, to sit down and look at it. And I hope that you will to get those messages clear. But he summarizes them this way. Number one, God raised up men to meet the necessity of the time. Ellen White, these, he is summarizing what Ellen White said. So Ellen White is the one who is making these statements, but he is summarizing those statements. God raised up men to meet the necessity of the time. Number two, some sought to turn aside the message to prevent an awakening among the people. Number three, such persons were ensnared by the enemy and gave the trumpet an uncertain sound. You know what that means, right? The sound of the trumpet needs to be crystal clear. It needs to be united. Everybody needs to be playing the same basic notes. Three, such persons were ensnared by the enemy. I said that already. Number four, these men, maybe I need to say it again. Huh? These men declared that the law should be preached, not the righteousness of Christ. That is where the problem came. The exhortation is to preach Christ in the law. So, and that is what she's trying to say. That's what needs to happen. Preach Christ in the law. Some were fearful of a departure from the former manner of preaching the good old doctrines. They were so caught up in those old doctrines that this new doctrine of the righteousness of Christ was setting them into confusion. So much so that those leaders were questioning whether or not Ellen White was a prophet as they had believed before. That's how significant what was going on in that time was. Number seven, God raised up men to herald the message of righteousness by faith. God was in those messengers sharing that message. That should have our attention. If the servant of God comes along and says, that message that these people are preaching is from God, you know what? I think I'd be uh, really afraid to question that. Of course, we always compare it against the Bible. And of course, we need to do that. Number eight, the challenge, will you dare to turn from or make light of the warnings? Number nine, the twofold result of rejecting the message, she said, would be deadening of spirituality and an influx of a mechanical, formal profession of faith. Another word for it is Phariseeism. Is it easy to become Pharisees? Yes, it is. And it's not just the ordained ministers that can become Pharisees. Number 10, the climactic question, is this mournful condition of things to continue? That's what Ellen White was asking. That's what A.G. Daniels was trying to help the church in 1924 to realize that there was still a problem in the church in 1924. That's why he wrote his book. That's why he was asked by the General Conference Committee to bring this material together so that it could be looked at again. And then Daniels speaks to the challenge that was going on in the 1888 and years following time. He says this, The rank and file of the people were confused and did not know what to do. He then shared some of Ellen White's statements about the situation that were written in 1890. Now remember, I can, would consider A.G. Daniels to be knowledgeable about that confusion. Yes, he was alive. He was an ordained Seventh-day Adventist minister. 
He was the president of one of the conferences, albeit in the South Pacific. He was knowledgeable of what was going on with the church. He communicated with these other people. He knew what was going on in the church. He's speaking from experience. He's speaking from first-hand knowledge. He's not just recounting what somebody might have suggested to him. He knew this information. And now here's another one of his lists, and it's the last one for today. Daniel's summary of Ellen White's statements that had come out of 1890. He says the message, this is the message that she was giving, telling the people of the tremendous problem that was in the church and the confusion and the division that was in the church. And this is what she said. The message of 1888 to 1890 was from heaven. From where? A message from heaven. Its rejection by some of the more experienced brethren led the young men into uncertainty and confusion. The leaders were leading the young men into uncertainty and confusion. Folks, I've been there. I know what that, that's like. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm responsible for my own confusion and uncertainty. I have the Word of God available to me in multiple forms, in all kinds of Bibles that are printed and some that are electronic. The Word of God is there for me. I can't blame anybody else for it. But it's a true fact, whether we like it or not, that God's leaders can at times lead the church into confusion. Now, careful, because I don't want you to go away from here suggesting that I'm telling you you can't trust the leaders of the church. I am one. I hope you get that. But we all have to take responsibility. We all have to search out the Word of God. We all must at times make our own confessions, me included, and realize that this message is something that we must understand. And God wants to help us to do that. Number three, those who rejected the message interposed themselves between the people and the light. I don't want to be there. I don't know about you. There is no excuse. The light has been plainly revealed, Ellen White told us. The reason men are slow to take hold of this precious truth is that they are bound about with their own ideas. The course of some has been to turn from the message to criticize the messengers. The documentation is there. It is unequivocal. It is so clear. The letters back and forth. I am amazed at the letters that were saved and that are available. The documentation is clearly there. That the, the, some of these individuals, many of whom the evidence is, did turn and confess. Some are not so certain. But that's not really the issue at this particular point. But they were slow to take in this hold of this precious, precious message. Number seven, those who refuse to walk in this advancing light will be unable to comprehend the third angel's message. Catch that. If you fight against this message, you won't be able to understand the third angel's message. And I can tell you right now, the third angel's message includes the mark of the beast. But that's not what we're talking about. Because there's another side to that. Number eight. Those who refuse to walk in this heavenly light, which by the way is in the Sabbath school lesson this week, right? Those who refuse to walk in this heavenly light will be unable to comprehend the third angel's message. I think that's in there twice. Must be important. Number nine, those who refuse to walk in this heavenly light, that is to lighten the earth with its glory, will call it a false light. That's not where you and I want to be, is it? Is it possible that we have been calling light darkness and we've been calling darkness light? As a result of their unbelief, important work will be left undone. Number 11, Solomon treaty to those who oppose the light to stand out of the way of the people. Number 12, such spiritual blindness causes sadness in heaven. I don't want to cause sadness in heaven. Number 13, if there had been no human voice lifted to give the message, the very stones 
would have cried out. And number 14, the call to every minister to humble the heart before God in order that spiritual strength may come into the church. Now, I told you there was good news. I'm not going through all those notes today. Okay? In the last 15 minutes that I have, or 14 minutes that I have, I want us to understand the significance of what this all means. You see, Daniels again makes this statement that I quoted earlier, just a part of it. But here it is in its entirety. The message has never been received, nor proclaimed, nor given free course as it should have been in order to convey to the church the measureless blessings that were wrapped within it. The seriousness of exerting such an influence is indicated through the reproofs that were given. These words of reproof and admonition should receive most thoughtful consideration at this time. This is the retired General Conference President appealing to the Seventh-day Adventist Church at his time, counseled by and challenged by the committee of the General Conference to pull this information together because the church really needed to receive this information. Again, he said, the church had not received this message. He said these words of reproof and admonition should receive most careful consideration. Don't you think they should today also? We're almost a hundred years past the time when he wrote those words. And then he said, and this time I bolded it, Oh, that we had all listened as we should to both warning and appeal as they came to us in that seemingly strange yet impressive way at the conference of 1888. What uncertainty would have been removed? What wanderings and defeats and losses would have been prevented? What light and blessing and triumph and progress would have come to us. But thanks be to him, unto him who loves us with an everlasting love. It is not too late, even now, to respond with the whole heart to both warning and appeal and receive the great benefits provided. This is a minister of the gospel, a leader of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And you and I are called upon to respect all of our leaders. I am so grateful for the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. As Elder Kelly has said more than once, I love my church. I love this church. I am so glad to be a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope that you are just as glad to be a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But we must take this whole situation very, very seriously. I'll tell you a little bit more of the story tomorrow, but I'm going to give you just a little bit of a glimpse of it because I want you to have some idea where we're going in our next presentation. A book came across my desk uh, a number of years ago, and um, I'll start with a story tomorrow. But like happens in the conference office, books come across your desk, and I'm a slow reader, all right? And when you see a book this thick, you know how long it's going to take you to get through that book. And somebody's absolutely got to convince you that there's something in that book you need to read. I didn't look carefully at the title, and it just went by me. What I did pick up is it spoke about the latter rain. Well, I've got a number of books in my library that speak about the latter rain. And I've read many of them, and I've seen what is spoken of in relationship to the latter rain. How many of you are praying for the latter rain? Keep praying. Keep praying. We need to pray for the latter rain. 
But we've been praying and praying and praying for the latter rain. But one day, somebody called me. I'll leave his name out of it right now. Called me and said, have you read such and such? And it wasn't in that book, it was in another book. And I, I said, no, I, I, I haven't read that. He said, you need to pick that up and read it. And I love that kind of a challenge, you know. Because now I know I better take a look at this. And this happens to be a fellow Seventh-day Adventist minister. So I got a hold of that book. As a matter of fact, I think I went out and bought it and then discovered I had a copy of that in my library already. You get a theme running here a little bit? So I picked it up and I went to the places where he said that I should go. And so I picked it up and I started to read through it. And I said, wow, I have never seen anybody who's been able to take that information and put it together in that particular way like that before. So much so that, yeah, I had to start reading the whole book. And then I said, did he write anything else? And I realized that, that it was actually the book before it that he wrote. And I say he wrote, it's just a, comp it's a putting together systematically, chronologically, this whole experience from 1888. We'll go and talk about this more in detail. Now let me go back to my own personal journey that goes back a little farther than this. But you're not going to tell us the name of the book today. Oh, you're right. I happen to have a... <laughs> there are some things I do on purpose. I don't do everything accidentally. I'll tell you at the end what it is. And so we... Um, let me tell you a little bit about my own personal journey. I grew up in a minister's home, Seventh-day Adventist minister's home. My father became a Seventh-day Adventist minister in the late 1940s, right after World War II. I was born into his home when uh, he was doing evangelism in Colorado. My address on my birth certificate is a motel. <laughs> that tells you anything. Not what it shouldn't tell you. My mother and father were doing evangelism in Colorado, and that's where I was born. My great-grandfather, I discovered many years later, was the third Seventh-day Adventist missionary to South Africa. I didn't understand any of that until I got to the seminary and wrote a paper and discovered all of that. But like Paul, it doesn't mean a thing if I don't have an understanding of the Word of God for myself. When I was in school, in 1970s, I'm 65 if you want to try to do the math on all of that, I'll save you all that energy. We can, in this heat you don't have a lot of energy to expend. In that time, in, 19, in the 70s, I was studying, and one of the things that was at the focal point for a number of different, re different reasons we're not going to get into today, but one of the focuses was on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And um, I, I picked up a number of different books, including Wagner's book and Jones's writing and others as well. But I began to discover as I started to get into that, into that study that there was a lot of confusion about that whole idea, what we were talking about. And you know, it, that's where the influence comes in upon us. As I got into that, I began to say, you know, wait a minute, maybe, maybe there's a misunderstanding here. Maybe I'm not understanding this correct. Maybe this, it really isn't here. And, and maybe what, what I've been seeing isn't there. So I kind of put it on the shelf. I've got to tell you folks, 40 years is a long time to leave something on the shelf. And when a young pastor calls you, and asks you a question like this pastor called and asked me. And all of a sudden, some of the lights started going on. And here's the really great news. 
I discovered that while the lights were going on in my head, they were going on in the, in the minds of several of us all at the same time. And that, of course, is just a coincidence. And so I started asking some questions of my brothers and leaders in the conference. And I said, what do you know about this? What do you think about this? What, what's your understanding on this? And all of a sudden I said, wow, really? And suddenly I began to realize that God was indeed turning the lights on in these last days. And there did not appear to be any coincidence about it at all. You see, as we'll look at in the next few days, when you go and look at what was happening in 1888 and the years that followed, they knew, because Ellen White made it clear, but there were so many other evidences, nobody was confused. They were about to see Revelation 13 and the other passages fulfilled. They were right then, it could happen, Ellen White said it was happening. And we began to realize that what they saw then is what you and I are seeing even now. So I want to tell you, don't give up your study on this. Because this is, last year I did a class on last day events. This class is so much more important than that, that class ever thought of being. Because this is what takes that knowledge and translates it into a relationship with Jesus that prepares you to be ready for whatever comes. Oh, that we had all listened as we should to both warning and appeal as they came to us in that seemingly strange yet impressive way, the conference of 1888. Tomorrow we will start up from here. The title of the book was The Return of the Latter Rain. You'd think a book like this would get my attention. Even a title like that might get my attention. But the first two words went right by my mind. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Because it's tremendously significant. Yes, both of these should be available in the ABC. That one and A.G. Daniels' book. Um, God bless you. Uh, tomorrow is going to be cooler, so we should be able to stand this even more. But we need to conclude with a word of prayer and be reminded that God has the answers for what we need for today. Let's pray. Dear Father in Heaven, it's an exciting time to live, not because of what we see going on around us in this world, but because of what you are doing in your church. Because we know that you have given a most precious message. And Lord, as we understand that message, the lights indeed will go on because it is such precious light, as Ellen White told us. The Word of God is so clear, we don't need to be confused but because we're such feeble human beings, you even sent a messenger in Ellen White and other messengers as well to make the message clear. As we study it in the next few days, we pray that you, our Holy Spirit, will continue to go with us through this journey and turn on the lights in our minds to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.